0: This evening we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll be picking up once we get there in verse 24 and we'll be covering down through the end of the chapter uh, this evening. But I kind of want to just remind everybody what we have been studying. We've been taking a look at the nation Israel for quite some time. The Old Testament is based around that and we see how God chose this group of people and he, his plan was for them to be governed by him or governed by God. And that's what the nation of Israel means. And that's his plan for us as well. He, want, he wants us to be governed by him. And he, he's living this out in a, in a real world environment with a group of people that, that he birthed miraculously out of Egypt. and the, They wandered in the desert and they came into the promised land. And he's been with them every step of the way. And we have watched as the nation Israel has consistently... Through generations, turned their back on God. One generation will follow, and it's not long before they begin to slip away and they begin to follow the things of the world or the, or the false gods. Or you know, and, and we've talked about how it's not like it's a conscious decision. It's something that creeps in, and, and it's some, something that if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us. You know, it wasn't like the nation of Israel woke up one morning and said, "That's it. We're renouncing Jehovah God, Yahweh God, no more. We're going after another god." It didn't happen that way. You see, in their mind, they thought they were still following God. But what was happening is this this influence of the world, this influence of the Canaanites was creeping into their life, and it slowly began to take over a little bit here and a little bit there. And as they yielded to this influence, before you know it, they found themselves in a situation where they had left God completely. And here in the book of 1 Samuel, they've said, hey, everybody else has a king. We want a king too. Every other nation on the earth has a king how come we don't have a king? And God would reply to them. And if I may be so bold, he would say, listen, I'm your king. I want to be the one that leads you. I want to be the one that you follow. I want to take you into battle and I want to bring you victory. And essentially they said to God, well, that's not what we want. We'd rather be like everybody else. Give us a king that we need. And the Lord finally said, you know what, Samuel, and Samuel was the prophet at the time. He said, go warn him go tell them what a real king brings. Tell them what a king's going to bring. Because we talked about this previously, a king is out for who? For himself. Do you think that our politicians in our, in our country are out for, who do you think they're really focused on? Themselves. It, it becomes about finances. It becomes about power. It becomes about wealth. It's really not the people. They're not looking. Don't be deceived and think that you know they're all out for me and they want to do what's best for me. At very best, a king or a politician can do what's best for the whole or what's best for the group or what's best for the pact. And the problem with that is that might not be what's best for you. And we talked about how God knows what's best for you. And when God's interest in your life is, it's personal. It's geared towards you specifically. It's geared towards whatever's going on in your life. And he wants to do what's best for Rob or what's best for Rebecca. Or he wants to do what's best for you personally. And you can fill your name in there. Now, that's who I want leading me, not the king, not the president, not the political system. I want the Lord Jesus Christ leading me. And we've watched as they've raised up this King Saul. At first, he was a man of God. He, he, He was very humble and he was timid. And as he's beginning to raise up in power, he's, well, he's done some things he's not supposed to do. He, Samuel said, go down and wait seven days for me and, and then I'll come down and we'll make sacrifices. Well, he came down and he saw the battle brewing and he couldn't wait any longer, so he made him on his own. They tried to pretend like it didn't happen. No, no, Samuel. And Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? You're not the priest. You're the king. You're not supposed to do my job. That's my job. I'm the one that's supposed to be seeking the Lord on this. And he told him that your kingdom is gonna be taken from you. And he told him why. He said, because you're not a man after God's heart. He said, God wants men and women to be people who are after God's heart. He doesn't want perfect people because if he did, guess what? We'd all be in trouble. He doesn't want sinless people because if he did, guess what? That would exclude you and I. He doesn't want powerful people. He doesn't want wealthy people. He doesn't want poor people. He wants people who will say, I want to be after God's heart. I want a heart like God has. And he can use that. And what we saw take place last week was Jonathan, Saul's son. Remember, they were doing battle with the Philistines, and Jonathan said to his armor bearer, hey, I think God wants to do something great here. I think he wants to do something really cool. And the armor bearer, instead of being, so Jonathan tells his armor bearer, he says, hey, let's climb up the rock to where the enemy's at, and we'll get up there, and we'll see what they say. If they say, come on down to us, then we'll know that God's on our side he delivered us to us. And if they say, we'll come up to you, then we're going to run like crazy because they're coming after us. Now, the armor bearer could have said, well, that's a dumb idea. Let's yell it from here. We've got a head start. But he doesn't. He supports him. He says, Let's, he says, do all that's in your heart. Go ahead, Jonathan. That, I'll, I'll go with you on that. So Jonathan climbs up on the rock, and, he, and the people, of the, the Philistines that are, that are oppressing the Israelites, say to Jonathan, hey, come on over to us. And Jonathan tells the armor bearer, follow me, I'll lead first. I'm a leader by going in first. And he knows, and he believes, and he takes that step of faith. God's going to deliver them. And they go to battle, and they start beginning to win the battle. And as a matter of fact, some of the Israelites who had joined the Philistines, because they were the the winners, they were the powerful ones. They were the ones that had all the weapons. Nobody wants to be on on the underdog side until the underdog starts winning. Then everybody wants to be on the underdog side, right? Well, once they start winning the battle against the Philistines, even the Israelites who had left the the nation Israel and joined the Philistines have now converted back to Israel. That's confusing for the Philistines. They don't know who they're fighting. You were with me one minute. Now you're trying to kill me. I don't understand. So there's this incredible battle that's taking place. Israel is winning. Saul is over on the other side, looks over and says, what's going on over there? Why are they all leaving? Why are they running? Where, where is everybody? Take roll. Find out where everybody's at. And he realizes his son, Jonathan, had gone over to do this. Well, naturally, when he sees, hey, they're doing pretty good. Let's go help them out. So they begin to move the rest of the army into where the area where, where the Philistines were. And that's where we pick up our study tonight. So the battle's raging. It's taking place. And let's pick up in chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now, I want to share something with you before we go any further. Saul, who's not really involved in this, comes in, and he's going to sort of fly off the handle, if you will. He's going to lay down the law and he actually says to the people, cursed you will be if you eat. So essentially he's declaring a fast. We're not going to eat. But the problem with that is what? They're in the middle of battle. Anybody that's done any prolonged exercise know what happens if you don't eat. What happens? You grow faint. You wear out. You can't keep going. Your body needs fuel to continue to fight. But Saul in his wisdom which is lacking here, because did God tell him to declare a fast? No, God didn't tell Saul to declare a fast. But Saul declares a fast to the people. All right, nobody's going to eat. Nobody's going to eat. And that leads the people to a problem. Because now they're fighting and fighting. The day is getting hotter and hotter. They're working and working. They're wearing out. They're burning calories. They're, they're fighting, and they need something to eat. They need to refill their body why would Saul do something so stupid? Listen, I want to, if you're taking notes, write this down. Don't make any stupid vows before God, because that's what this is. Don't make any stupid vows before God. And you, you know what I mean by that. Don't make vows that you can't keep. You know, don't make a vow that you can't keep. Like, th- this, is, this would be equivalent of you saying, all right, Rob, we're having a, we're having a hard, we're going to, as a church, we're going to go volunteer to put on a roof at a house. And you show up there on that day and you say, I'm fasting today but I'm going to work all day. Well, that's dumb. You can't work all day and not eat. It'd be like saying, well, I'm not drinking water today, but I'm going to be out in the sun all day hot and, and, and sweat. Well, that's stupid. Why, why would you do something like that? Don't make vows you won't keep. You know, don't make, a, don't make a vow that you know you have no intention of keeping, or it's impossible for you to keep. If you're in battle, to not eat is going to be impossible for you to keep, and then to, to tie somebody's life to it. Listen, you... It'd be, it'd be, it would be as foolish as somebody saying, let's pretend I'm a chef, and I'm going to decide, well, I'm going to fast today at work. Really? You're going to be around food all day cooking and not eat? Good luck. Let's say you're, you're, you work for an advertising agency, and you say, well, I'm going to I'm gonna fast for media this week. I hope you're staying home from work because it's part of your job. There, this vow, this vow is, is completely stupid, and it's going to become a burden on the people, but I want you to see why he made this vow. Because if we don't stop there and we don't look at it, we're going to miss the point. And here's why that he made this vow. It says, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Notice what it says, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. This vow wasn't about seeking God. This vow was about Saul taking vengeance on the Philistines. Let me put it to you this way. A stupid vow is any vow to the Lord where the focus is on you instead of the Lord. That's a stupid vow. Anytime you decide that I'm going to do something for God, I'm doing this for you, Lord, and the focus is about you, that's stupid. That's what Saul's doing. His focus for this vow, the reason he's doing it is because he wants to beat the Philistines. Just follow God and you'll beat the enemy. But it's all about him. Let me put it to you another way. When doing something for the Lord, the focus must be on him. When you go, I'm going to go do something for the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. The focus must be on the Lord. Otherwise, if the focus is on you, you're not really doing it for him. You're doing it for yourself. Let me give you a couple examples. Lord, I'm going to fast. I'm gonna fast for a new car. I'm gonna fast for a job. I'm gonna fast for a new house. I'm going to fast. I'm not going to eat, Lord, but I want you to do this for me. I'm going to fast. And you're doing this thing that is religious, that is spiritual, but your focus isn't on seeking Lord. What do you want? You're not saying, Lord, do I want do you want me to have a new car? Do you want me to have a new house? What's your will, Lord? You're going into this with the idea of saying, God, I want you to do this for me. And since I'm fasting for me, for you, you need to do this for me. It's not the way it works. That's what Saul's doing. We're going to stop. We're going to stop eating. Let me give you, this is so, this is so important in the life of a believer. Morning devotions. How many of you guys do morning devotions? A lot of you guys. We'd like to do morning devotions. Do you do your morning devotion so that you'll have a good day? I hope not. I hope not. You do your morning devotion so that you can meet with God so that you can spend time with him. If I do my morning devotions because I want to have a good day, that's my, fo- that's my reason, that's my focus, because I want things to be right today, and I don't want to have any problems. That's my reason. That's, that's the wrong reason. Who's the focus on there? My day. It's about me. It's about what I want. Instead, my morning devotions should be that I can draw closer to the Lord. I can draw closer to him, because what happens if I have a bad day? What happens if you get some news around lunchtime? Lord, I did my morning devotions, and I got fired. Lord, I did my morning devotions, and I, this didn't happen. Do you see the heart that can be there? You have to be careful. People do this with everything. Christian, I, why do you go to church? Do you go to church so you can get to heaven? It won't help you. I'm sorry. You'll never make it to heaven. God, when you get to heaven, God's not going to say, well, how many, how, many times did you, how many Sundays did you miss church? It's not going to be there. There's no attendance roll taking place. We go to church to meet with God. To worship God, to learn more about God, to fellowship with each other. If I'm going to church because it's all about me, then I'm going with the wrong reasons. It works with praying. I like this one. I wrote this one down. What about praying to the God to fix my spouse? Lord, will you fix my husband? Will you fix my wife? And nothing happens. I tried that. It didn't work. What about praying to God to fix you? What about praying? Should I be praying to God to fix my wife? I should be praying for my wife. But who really needs to get fixed? Me. I can't fix her. I have to fix me. She's nothing wrong with her, by the way. She's perfect. <laughs> it's me. I'm the problem. I'm the one that needs to be fixed. But do you see the heart? How we can turn this all and put it on somebody else, and it becomes a selfish motivation for what we're doing. Saul's heart here is because I want vengeance. Not, he's not saying, Lord, you go after the enemy. You handle it. I want to handle it. I want to do it. I want to get the credit. And he probably is a little bit jealous that Jonathan's over there whipping him. And he was sitting under the tree trying to figure out what to do. So, oh, I I got some other examples here. This is so important. Taking a step of faith. You've heard me say, take a step of faith. I know people who have taken steps of faith that God hasn't told them to take. And then when they get out there and they do this thing, they say, well, God's not meeting me here. God's not doing anything. God never told you to take it. Your motivation is wrong. Instead of doing that, we should be taking a step of faith and saying, Lord, I want to be obedient. What do you want me to do? And we need to be willing to wait until he tells us what he wants us to do. You know, I wrote another one down, helping others. I help others so so God will bless me. No, that's not the right reason. We help others because that's what God's called us to do. You see how as Christians, all of these things that we can do can be good things, but if our heart's in the wrong way, it's going to bring damage to our life. It's going to bring damage to our relationship with Christ. It's going to bring legalism into us, and it's going to eventually lead us into sin. You see, Saul says, I'm proclaiming a a fast. Nobody's going to eat. Saul, that was stupid. They're in the middle of battle. If they need to eat a Cliff Bar to carry on, give them a Cliff Bar. Let them have some. We're going to see they want some honey. Let them eat. So let's see what happens. Verse 26, when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan, that's Saul's son, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb but put, and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Do you see what's taking place? The men are moving through the woods. They come to a section. They come to an opening. There's a beehive or a bee. There's a log with bee, Something in it. There's honey there. And Jonathan sees it. And what does he do? He takes his rod. He sticks it in there. And he starts eating it. It's raw honey. Yum! This is good. And then we see something, his countenance brightens. Why is that true? Listen, if you have ever done anything, as a matter of fact, if you've done anything exercise or physical for a long period of time, you know there will come a point where you will just start to die off energy-wise. And if you will eat honey, and honey is, any honey, anything sugar, it will immediately It'll immediately bring your countenance back up. It'll bring your energy level back up, and you'll be able to continue on. It, that, that's why you ever watch somebody running long distance they have those little packs around their waist, and they take these little, these, little, these little gel packs, and they eat bars, and they do that because they have to keep feeding their body to do the energy. That's the scientific reason behind it because your body needs the calories or the carbohydrates to continue to burn energy. If it doesn't have fuel, it can't, it can't live. So these men are here. They're watching it. They're afraid. And, and, and Jonathan walks over, sticks his hand. Mmm, this is good. Let's go. And they're going, we can't. We can't eat because your dad said we're going to die. And what does Jonathan say? Jonathan says, verse 29, but my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, there would not have been a for now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? You see, his stupid oath inhibited his goal. His stupid oath before God because he wanted to be spiritual. He wanted to be religious. He declares a fast, and Jonathan says, Listen, and, and, and maybe he shouldn't have put it this way because he's rather direct. My father's troubled the land. How much better could we have done? If we'd just eaten a little bit of our enemy's food, we'd have been better off. We could have have done more. And I'm always wondering and reminded, as Christians, don't make these dumb oaths before the Lord. Listen, if we're going to fast, if we're going to seek the Lord, if we're going to do something with the Lord, always learn to question your motivation for doing it. Not eating was not the problem. The problem is the motivation. We can do good things with the wrong motivation, and there's no reason for doing them all. There's no glory, there's no credit, there's no there's no even eternal reward. We can do very little and be obedient to the Lord and get incredible rewards. We have to always look at our motivation and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's leading me to do this? And let me put it to you another way. If you ever give God your resume when you're complaining to Him, Lord, I go to church on Sunday, Lord, I go to church on Thursday, Lord, I, go, I went to prayer meeting twice last year, Lord, I, I volunteered once last year, Lord, I, I did this. I, if that's you, if, the, if you're giving God your resume at some point, and then you say, so why is this happening to me? Your motivation's wrong. It's the wrong motivation. You're not doing it for the Lord. You're doing it for you. You're doing everything you're doing, you're doing to get something back. That's, that's, that's an important thing in the life of a believer that we need to make sure we're, we're not doing it for that reason. Because if we're doing it for that reason, I'm sorry to say you'll be here for a long time if you stick around and you're not conforming to God's will. You're just simply saying to the Lord and essentially you're reducing him to that genie in a bottle and you're making wishes. And when they're not granted, you say, he didn't do what I, he didn't, I tried God. He didn't help me out. No, you didn't try God. You didn't try God. You tried God the way you wanted to try God. You didn't come to God the way that he wanted you to come to God. You didn't come that way. You came the way that you thought, Lord, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. And I did my part and you didn't do your part. He let me down. Oh no, you don't know the Lord. That's, that's not God. That's not who God is. God says, you come to me and you conform to me and then I will bless you. You come to me, you conform to me. You follow me the way I prescribe for you to follow me and you watch what I'll do in your life. I'll do things that you never thought possible. You'll have joy and peace that you never knew existed, but you're going to have to do it my way. That's where we miss it sometimes as believers. Our motivation has to be for the Lord and not for ourselves. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. We have to be seeking his will and not our will. Make sense? All right, so Jonathan tells the people, listen, we've been better off. Verse 31, now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Mishmash to Ajalon, so the people were very faint. Of course they're faint, they're not eating. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, look, people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Let me explain to you what took place. They fought all day. They fought hard all day. It finally comes down to about evening time. It's over. And the people are so hungry, they start slaughtering the animals. I don't think they ate them raw. I think they cooked them, but they didn't prepare them properly. You see, back in, back in, uh, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it told them how to prepare the animals before they were supposed to, uh, Leviticus, rather, told them how to prepare the animals before they cooked them. They were supposed to drain the blood out of them. But you know what that took? That took time. That, that took a time. There was a procedure. They had to make them kosher. They had to go through this proper procedure to get the blood out of the animals, but they couldn't do that. Why? Because they're very faint. Do you see what the stupid oath brought about? It brought about legalism and eventually led into sin. It brought about legalism that led them directly into sin. That's why I say don't make any stupid oaths before God. God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll never do that again. You probably can't keep that oath. God, if you'll just do this, if you'll get me this job, then I'll never ask for anything. Oh, yeah? Be careful. People do it the other way around. Lord, I'm going to get up every day next week and I'm going to have a devotion with you. And then what happens? You have a bad night, you sleep in, and you miss a devotion. You blew it. You set up the law, you don't follow it. It's sin. You, set, you, decide, to, you decide how I'm going to come to God, and I don't make it. I'm going to fail. It's sin. We want to be people who are living in the grace of God. Let me tell you how to do your morning devotions. It's better to do a morning devotion than an evening devotion, I believe, because the day's already gone in the evening, right? I mean, So when you do your morning devotions, when I do mine, I let the Lord wake me up. Some mornings, I'm up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Other mornings, I'm not up till 7 o'clock because the Lord let me sleep in a little bit. But I've found when I try to be legalistic about it, I can't get my, I'm going to get up every day at 5.30. And I set the alarm clock and I get up and you open the Bible. You're like, oh, I'm so tired. Go back to bed. Let him wake you up. The mornings that you can't sleep, he'll get up. But schedule your day in a way where you can wake up and spend that time with God. Not because you're expecting a good day, because you know that you can't face the day unless you've spent time with Him. Because if I do my evening devotions, my whole day has already passed. I've already made all the decisions. I already had all the contacts. I've already I I a lot of times you do your morning. If, if, a lot of times you'll do your later devotions later in the day or you'll spend time with God later in the day. Guess what? You'll go, well, I wouldn't have done that earlier this morning. I would have made that change. I wouldn't have talked to that person that way. I certainly would have had more compassion there. Let's start the day that way. But not so we can get something, but so the Lord can speak to us. Now, Jonathan has made a mistake. The people here, Saul's legalism has led them into sin. Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox, every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. So Saul realizes what's going on. He realizes the people are eating unclean meat because it hasn't been prepared properly. So he says, go get a rock. Go get a big flat rock. We're going to make a big table. We're going to do this properly. And essentially, that's what he does. In, In the right way, he encourages people, hey, come out and do this the right way. But he's not realizing that he's the problem. He doesn't realize that his order is the one that's created this. So they do. Now, verse 36. Now, Saul said, this is King Saul, said, let's go down to after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, let's draw near to God here. Let's draw near, near to God here. So Saul, after they're done eating, says, let's keep fighting. Let's keep fighting. Let's go on down. And the people say, whatever you want, whatever seems good to you. But I like the priest. The priest, look what the priest says. Let us draw near to God here. The priest says, hey, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I know we're on a roll. I know we just had a good meal and we're filled up. We got energy. But don't you think we should see what God wants us to do? Let, let's take some time and, and seek the Lord. I know everything will be pointing in that direction. I know everything looks good to keep going. Let's go keep beating our enemy. But let's just, let's just, let's just pray for a minute. I like that. I think we all need to learn something there. You know, sometimes it's just before you move on to something, hey, pray for something. Hey, I just need to get some direction here. You know, I am firmly, thoroughly convinced, and it happens in my life often, if you have a desire to be led by the Lord, he will lead you. If you have a desire to hear the Holy Spirit tell you what to do, he will tell you what to do. He really will. You can be led, and I've watched many times in my life where the Lord has said, hey, I want you to go do this. And then I have a choice. Do I want to be obedient or do I want to be disobedient? But it's out there. It's available to you if that's your heart. You have to want to be led by God. If you don't want to be led, guess what? You're not going to hear it. He's not going to lead you. He knows your heart. He wants a man or a woman after God's own heart. That is somebody who says, I want to be led by God. I don't want to be led by the world. I don't want to be influenced by the world. I don't want to be influenced by pop culture. I don't want to be influenced by TV. I want to be influenced by God and by the word of God. So he straightens them out. Priest says, "Hey, wait wait hold on, let's ask God here, verse 37. So Saul asked the counsel of God. "Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand of Is- Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he being God, did not answer him that day. Don't you hate that? Lord, should we go down and fight the Philistines? We deliver them into our hands? Nothing. No answer. No, nothing. Not a sound. So Saul says in verse 38, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. The Lord's not talking to me, he says, so there must be some sin. The Lord's not talking, I'm not hearing from him, so there must be sin. I got to deal with this. And verse 39 says, For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it might even be Jonathan my son, He shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. He said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. Listen, Saul seeks God and God doesn't answer. And Saul realizes there's a problem. There's a problem. There's something going on. But what Saul does is he fails to realize he's the problem. He fails to realize he's the problem. You see, he thinks the problem has to do with the sin because somebody violated his order. Somebody violated his curse. Anybody that eats today will be cursed. So this must be why God's not speaking to me. What would he be better off doing? Lord, I'm the one that's burdened your people. Think about what Saul did. He put an unnecessary burden on the people of God in an effort to make them more religious. We're not eating today. The Lord's going to deliver the Philistines into my hands. Now he goes to the Lord. Lord, what do we do? And he hears nothing. There's no answer. There's nothing coming. Nothing coming across. I'm not hearing it. What do I do? Oh, there must be sin in somebody else's life. It must be somebody else's problem. So let's 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 figure out who it is. And the mistake he makes, and before we go to what he finds out here, the mistake that Saul makes in all of this, is he doesn't look inward doesn't look inside at him. If your life is filled with problems and your life is filled with drama and your life is filled with, I can't get along with this person. I can't get along with that person. I'm having trouble here. I'm having trouble there. Can I tell you to pick up a mirror and look at it and you will see the biggest problem right there, right in front of you. It'll, the problem is you or the problem is me. It's not my boss's fault, or my wife's fault, or my teacher's fault, or this person's fault, or my employee's fault. It's me. I'm the problem. That's what Saul's missing. He thinks it's somebody else's fault. And you know what? He, you know who's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the cat out of the bag if you haven't read ahead. You know whose fault he's going to blame it on? His son, Jonathan. Jonathan's the only one following the Lord. He's the one doing what God said. He's the one that went over after the Philistines. He's the one that's bringing him victory. It's got to be somebody else's fault. Listen, Christian, don't ever be afraid to look at yourself and say, it could be my fault. And when your life seems like it's falling down around you and you feel like everything's closing in and things are not working out and there's just strife and, and, the, and it, don't look to blame everybody else. Don't blame your past. Don't blame your failure or there's no future. Don't blame your lack of education. Don't blame this. Don't blame that. Look in the mirror because that is where the problem starts and that's also where the problem can be fixed. Because all those other things you have no control over Can't control your spouse. Can't control your teacher. Can't control your boss. Can't control your employees. Can't control your husband. Can't control your wife. Can't control any of it. The only one that you can control is that same person you see in that mirror looking back at you. It becomes, I become the problem. Saul doesn't see that. So he's going looking for the problem, which is the right thing, but let's see what he finds. So he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son, Jonathan, and I will be on the other side. That's in verse 40. So basically he divided everybody. All Israel's on one group and here's my son and my, here's my son, Jonathan and I, and then people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Verse 41, Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So here's what's taking place. This is how they used to seek God's will. They would the the, the priest would have on a breastplate, and uh, some people think they drew sort of like a straws or drew sticks, but I, I personally think the priest would carry this breastplate, and there was this little bag on this breastplate, and it had had two stones in it, an ermum and a thumum. One was black and one was white. And when they would seek the Lord, they would ask the priest a yes or no question. And they would begin to pull out either a black stone which meant no, or a white stone, which meant yes. So it was either a yes or a no answer. So as Saul separates himself and Jonathan and everybody else, because he didn't think it was them, he thought he'd start big. The lot that was drawn came to Saul and Jonathan. The people were released. The problem that, that you know, what's, what's taking place here is he says, Lord, show me, who the, show me where the sin is. And it falls on him and Jonathan. And then Saul said, in verse 42, cast lots between my son, Jonathan, and me. And Jonathan was taken, which means the lot went to Jonathan. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him. And he said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. How do you think he said that? You see, that statement could be said a couple of different ways, couldn't it? I could say that statement and say, all right, I'm Jonathan speaking here, and he says, I only tasted a little honey with the end of my rod, so now I must die? Come on, Dad, what's the big deal? I just stuck, I I didn't hear you make the thing. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think Jonathan is saying, if you made the command, I think he's saying it now, I must die. And I'm prepared to face that. I did, I I violated your command, which was stupid, but doesn't matter because I must die. And now I'm prepared to face that. And look what Saul says. Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. You're gonna die. Why? This doesn't make any sense. This is ludicrous. He makes this stupid oath, or this stupid rule, we'll call it. He brings the people under bondage, he puts them under legalism. Jonathan wasn't even there to hear it. He, he eats of the honeycomb. The people tell him. Now, maybe he ate all day. We don't know that, that, that information. And now Saul's willing to kill his own son over this. Why would he do something like that? Pride. No one's going to break my oath. If I don't kill my son, then he'll think I'm getting off easy. I want the people to respect me. Do, do you see where it leads? Do you see where these stupid oaths lead? You make something like this to God, it's leading the people into bondage, it's leading them into legalism. It led them into sin and it's ultimately going to lead them to want to kill his own son. This is just ludicrous. This is not a man after God's own heart. This is a man doing things his own way. This is a man doing things without the understanding of God. When he looks for the problem, he thinks the problem is because Jonathan's not listening. Jonathan broke my rule. He broke my oath. Where's the problem? It's in the mirror. You're the problem, Saul. Same thing with your life and my life. When there's issues in my life, I'm usually the problem. Same thing with you. You can be the problem. Jonathan's the only one helping them win. He's the one giving them victory. This whole whole victory that they're enjoying is a result of Jonathan. And Saul says, well, now you must die. Jonathan says, fine, dad. If that's what you need to do, do what you got to do. But the people, in verse 45, said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Notice a couple things the people never gave him up. They never told him. When Saul was asking what happened, they never gave him up. They never gave him up. How many of us would give, how many times would somebody give up their fellow brother and sister in Christ? Ah, they sinned. Ah, they broke the rule. Ah, they didn't do their morning devotions. Ah, they didn't do, no, don't give them up. Stand strong with them. Stand, stand, in, the, stand in the gap with them. John, John, nobody would give up Jonathan. And when it came to the point where Saul was about to kill him, the people said, no, 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 no. You might be king, but we're not letting that happen you're not doing it. Not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground. Why? For he has worked with God this day. The people knew who was following God. The people saw it in his life. How did they see it in his life? Because they watched it take place. They watched the fruit in Jonathan's life. They knew that he was following God. And they said to Saul, you're not going to touch him. I don't care if you're a king, it's not going to happen. Now I'm sure it didn't take Saul much convincing, because I'm sure that he didn't really want to kill his son. I can't believe a father would ever want to do something like that. So I don't think it took much convincing. The people stand up for Jonathan, and then we read in verse 46, Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Saul established his sovereignty over Israel. He's the leader. He's the king. They fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, "...against Edom, against the king of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. He gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites, delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them." It gives some family history on Saul. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshu, and Maleshua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The names were the firstborn Merib, and the name of the younger was Michal, the name of Saul's wife. Here we give some information here. The name of the commander of his army. That's important. Remember Abner. You'll hear about Abner in the coming books. Uh, daughter of Ahimeas, uh, commander of his army, was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the, fa- was the father of Saul. Ner was father of Abner, the son of Abiel. Now look at verse fifty-two. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Notice two things in the last verse. His life was spent at war. At war. Everybody around him, he fought. Everybody around him, he plundered. Everybody. Is that the life that we want? Do I want a life at war? I want to be governed by God. I want God to do the fighting for me. I don't want to be at war with my enemy. I don't want to be at war with my neighbors. I don't want to be at war with the people across the aisle. I, don't, I want peace in my life. You see, if we're like Saul we won't look in that mirror we won't realize that we're the problem everybody else becomes the problem and your whole life will be spent being at war with everybody else but notice the last thing and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man he took him for himself that means if Saul saw a young teenage boy who was taller than the rest who was stronger than the rest he said you become mine that's what Samuel warned of He's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take it all from you. He's going to take your families away from you. Why? Because he doesn't care about your family, he cares about the kingdom. God cares about you and your family. God wants to fight for you and your family. The king doesn't want to fight for you and your family, he wants to fight for the kingdom at very best. They gave up the ability to be governed by God, to be governed by man, At that point in time, if you were God, wouldn't you have kicked them to the curb? Wouldn't you have said, fine, go. God hasn't done that and God won't do that. God is still with them because God's in the process of raising up another king named King David who will be a man after God's own heart. God says to these people, I realize that you've forsaken me. I realize you've left me. I realize you've walked away from me. I realize you've said no to my plan and you've taken your own plan. He says, but I'm not gonna leave you. I promise to never leave you or forsake you, and I'm not leaving you. That's the God that we serve. So the great thing is, no matter where we're at in our life, when we look in that mirror and say, you know what, I'm the problem, the next step is, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. And you know what he says? It's about time. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, where have you been? What's wrong with you? I told you now. That's not that at all. Remember the prodigal son? story? What was the father doing? He was waiting for the son to come home. He's saying he couldn't wait for the son to come home. He saw him running from afar off and the father took off running after him. It's the same thing with us. No matter where we've been, no matter how far we've gone, no matter how we've messed up, if we'll just humble ourselves, look in that mirror and say, Lord, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. My pride, my sin, my fault. Will you forgive me? He says, yeah, I'll forgive you and I'll lead you and I'll guide you. And he says, I'll forget about everything else. I'll forget about it. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to hold the way that you messed up last month, last week, last year. I don't care how bad it was. The scripture tells us he chooses to remember our sins no more. It's a choice he makes not to remember your sins. So when you're remembering them, he's not. He's let them go. Cool scripture, huh? Cool thing there. Some interesting stuff there. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 15. Let's pray. Father, your word is so incredibly applicable to our lives. Lord, may we be people who check our motivation for doing things. May may we not give you our resume, Lord, not coming to you with expectations, not coming to you with a a list of accomplishments that we want to see you do. Instead, may we come to you with an open heart, And say fill us. Use us. Lord may we conform to your will. May you transform us. Lord as we look around our life. If there's issues and if there's problems. May we we pick up that mirror. May we see ourselves in it. And may that be where we start first. Lord as we see your faithfulness to the Israelites. It just shows us how faithful you are to us. Because while you haven't forsaken them for what they've done, Lord, we're just like them. We walk away. We forget about you. But yet you're always there for us. You've promised if we draw close to you, you'll draw close to us. So when we feel distant, it's not because you've left. It's because we've pulled away. Lord, thanks for not forgetting us. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for forgiving us. Thanks for putting up with us. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.